June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything, from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Ion Veterans. All right, welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, reporting for the Military News and Veteran Lifestyle website, ConnectingVets.com. Now this week we've got another segment that could be part of the Ion Veterans Book Club. We're talking about the new book, The Way Forward. Master life's toughest battles and create your lasting legacy. And it's by two best-selling authors, Marine Corps veteran Dakota Meyer and former Navy SEAL Rob O'Neill. Now in the veteran community, neither of these guys need much introduction. Rob O'Neill is a former team member of SEAL Team 6, but his name was etched into American history as the man who killed Osama bin Laden. And after saving American lives during one of the bloodiest battles in the history of the war in Afghanistan, Marine Corps veteran Dakota Meyer solidified his place in history as the first living Marine to receive the Medal of Honor in 41 years. Both are best-selling authors and friends in real life. And today we'll dive into the book that they collaborated on. We'll hear some down-to-earth gritty stories and get some advice on how to tackle life's biggest battles with the edgy sense of humor you'll always find in Military Vets. Dakota Meyer, how the hell are you, buddy? No, I'm doing good. How are you? Really good, man. 
really while. good. It has. I was going to say about three years ago, uh, maybe even a little bit longer. Um, I covered your receiving the Medal of Honor, and uh, you know your 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 incredible story that's documented in your book, Into the Fire. And we did it over phone. So looking at you here over Zoom, uh, you know, you're just as handsome as I thought you'd be. Look at you there. You're looking yeah. good, dude. I do. I do have a face for radio, you know. <laughs> no beard anymore, though. And uh, you're looking good. Did you lose weight in the last couple of years? Yeah, I tried to. You know, I'm trying to. I got, I, yep. You know, the way I look at it is I've, I've been uh, I actually started a gym. So I figured I better get in shape uh, for, with, with my gym. But, you know, the way I look, I got two young daughters. Uh, I got a, I got a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And, you know, I have got to stay in shape. I got to stay uh, in the best shape that I can because I've still got, you know, 12 to 14 years before I have to be ready to fight 18-year-olds, you know. And, <laughs> and, and, and so I have to just – I have to stay on top of it. I don't want to get behind. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a mantra to live by. And it actually all dovetails nicely into what brings us together today. Uh, last yeah. time we chatted again, it was about Into the Fire, the book. We talked about the Battle of Ganjgal, uh in 2009, talked about the hell to pay, talked about the combat mission that uh, basically kind of earned you a real stoic place in history. And you being the first living recipient, I know it was like kind of a you know, a tough cross to bear. And we talked about the complex emotions there. And this one, I, I didn't know what to expect with this next book that you paired up with Navy SEAL Rob O'Neill and wrote, yeah. but it's called uh, The Way Forward. And it, it feels like, you know, the stories your dad might write and then pass down to you one day. It yeah. is really cool. It's, it's, it's cut line here is master life's toughest battles and create your lasting legacy. And I think that's why it feels kind of parental. So I want to dive into a little bit of it. Just, you know, we'll walk through just a couple of the first chapters because I don't want to give too much of it away. But I remember from our first interview, you know, you were a high school football player, you know, yeah. talk about big, big, dumb Jack guy. There you were a farm boy playing okay. some football in high school. But that's about all I knew from our first conversation is that, you know, football was your way and you couldn't probably do it in high. You couldn't do it beyond high school. I didn't know about the two people in your life or the rather the three people in your life that are the most important. Well, let's start with big Mike. Yeah. You know, big, big Mike's an incredible guy. Um, you know, I think my dad, and, and, and so like the reason we wrote this, is I, I, I have this theory for whatever it's worth that at some point in life, you have a day of reckoning, right? Like, and it's not like, it's not like an accountability moment. It's not, it's like a mixture between reflecting back as to what this really meant to me in a day of, of the aha moment, right? It's like a mixture between that. And I think that, I think that like this book is, is all those moments that, that have forged me and Rob into being who we were, right? Like the training that the military taught us was built on the principles that life taught us before that. And you, you can choose on what you do with these things, whether you become the victim and you blame everything, every failure on it, or, or you, or you, you look at them and you dissect them and you, you, you figure out how to not be that again, right? And, and so, so I think these are the lessons that, that we've, and I don't want to speak for Rob, but these are the lessons on my side of it that I felt like brought us together and, and, and we put in the book. And, and so you're exactly right. And so, you know, you talk about Big Mike. I mean, Big, Big Mike is my, is my dad. And, and, and my dad is just a, he's a simple, simple man, right? Like the, the principles with him are simple. My dad doesn't, when it comes to serious conversations, he doesn't, he doesn't say a lot. Like it is very direct to the point 
and when my dad says something, you have to, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, do I not like this because he's being, you know, for better or worse, ask, or do I not like it because I just don't like what he's saying, but he's right. And so my dad is just, a man is built on principle. I mean, he, he he's forged since day one. The consistency of my dad is, is, is second to none. The lessons that he taught me, not through so much, my, my dad didn't teach me a lot of lessons of sitting me down and like, so let's talk about how we went through this. Like, let's think about how that made you feel. And, and do you want to think about how that made me feel when you said that? That was never, that was never an aspect of, of the way my dad taught me or my grandfather taught me. My dad taught me through the way he lived. Instead of making you feel good, he wants to make you better. I think that, you know, like after I had kids, I realized how critical of a component he was to me. Just through a lot of things, right? Like I used to look at me being adopted as like my real dad didn't want me. I was garbage from the beginning of time because literally I I, I just, it's like a sympathy, like a, a feel good thing. Like this guy's just taking me on because nobody else will. Right. And and so, you know, even my mom, my mom is a mother, right? Like she was, she was terrible. And, and then I realized after I had kids that I was looking at it wrong. I was looking at it from a selfish perspective and I wasn't looking at it from his. So again, like my dad is just from the core, from day one, that man is just, just such an incredible human being. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of stitched it together there at the end, but I wanted to note that, uh, you know, kind of a fractured relationship with your mom and, uh, you know, we don't pick our parents, you know, understandable, you know, she was young when she had you, uh, things went down, couldn't quite actually do it the way she wanted to do it. And big Mike, a stepdad stepped in and stepped up and not to say that you didn't have a dad, but you had big Mike who, who not only adopted you, but wanted to take that call, wanted to bring you to the farm. I mean, I loved that part of the story. And let let me put this in perspective because my dad's never told me this story. Literally when I came home and told my dad, I found out I was adopted because my mom just out of, out of just being the type of manipulative person she is. She like literally just threw down the adoption papers in front of me on my 13th birthday, asked me to move in with her and said, why, you know, like you're adopted. He's not even your real dad. Didn't even mention to my dad that she was going to do this. Right. So you talk about trust issues, but I'll never forget going home and telling my dad, just being so furious. He looks at me and goes, yeah, you're adopted. Yeah. Nobody had told you. And he looked at me and he just goes, what does that change? What does that change between us to talk about like how amazing my dad is? My dad adopted me while they were married. Right. And then my mom and him divorced. I think it was like maybe, maybe a year. My dad could have got rid of the papers. I was less than a year old, maybe a year and a half, right? Less than two years old. But my dad still chose to pick me up every Wednesday, every other weekend, like whatever the custody arrangement was, my dad still chose to do that. And you talk about, it's one thing to adopt a kid and keep a kid after you've had them for a year, like after they're in their six, seven, eight. But my dad was raising a baby. And you talk about an incredible human being. I mean, just my dad is just, you know, and, I, and so after I got the medal and after I hit the news and stuff, <clears throat> my biological dad tried to reach out to me. And I just wrote back and I said, I don't know what you're trying to prove here, but like, I already know who my dad is. 
and and it's and it's Big Mike. I don't I don't need to do a DNA test to to give you some type of feel good. Like we're gonna have some romance of you know reconciliation. I said you've already missed out. This man raised me, and so I always talk about like that lesson for me was I learned that at an early age that that just because your blood doesn't mean your family. And this is literally within like the first 20 pages of the book. You, you, you get this connection of you, tough ass country boy, grew up in Kentucky, big Mike, always willing, always ready. Fast forward past a funny moment, which we won't get into here, but I want to tell the listeners about uh, uh, you guys playing uh, jackass before uh, it was, you know, when it was first out on MTV and a couple country boys, the hood of a car and a truck in the middle of a field. That's all I'm going to say, but I'm surprised you lived through that. Um, high school, you were scrappy. You were a brawler. And I don't think you really knew why either. You just, you just knew you liked to fight. And. I, I don't know what little excerpt I want to have you pull out of that, whether it's the brawling. Let's do this one. Let's talk about the lesson you learned as a cheerleader. Kind of started from like, what, busting chops to yeah. a dare, and yeah. then kind of unpack that with me, because I, I found that connection to be very interesting. Yeah, so like there was, there was these two girls who were kind of like sisters to me. You know, you had uh, Mary and Mackenzie, right? And they were just... And so they were into cheerleading. They, they cheerleaded for the school. Like they cheerleaded and, uh, for a uh, competition squad. We're like brothers and sisters, right? So it's just like always talking, always talking smack back and forth. And I mean, they're like, well, why don't you just show up one day? If it's so easy, you know, like, look, my mouth usually wrote a lot of checks that, that, you know, I, I didn't have any, any cash for, right? So I just one day I was like, fine, I'll, I'll come do it. Like I'll, I'll come do gymnastics, right? So after football practice, I go to, to this gymnastics at, at this, it's like a, it was like a, a traveling competition squad. I was, there was three guys. I was one of the three guys and, you know, I, I got there and like, we were doing the gymnastics stuff with them, like whatever. And then like they're, they were doing some practice for like the competition squad afterwards. And they're like, come over here. Like, let's, you know, let's, like, let's see if you, like, let's see what a basket toss looks like with you throwing it, right? And so, like, there was a short ceiling in there, and I'll never forget the flyer. Her name was Keisha. Really, like, small girl, like, obviously the flyers are usually the smallest girls. And I'll never forget, like, I go up there, and, like, the first time, like, I I thought that it was, you know, I'm going to have to throw as hard as I can, you know what I mean? Threw it up, and, like, she went up to the ceiling and, like, literally almost had to lay flat to not hit her head and come back down. And they were like we got to have you like, we let's like, you got to be a cheerleader. And like, so it just went on from there. And, you know, again, like looking at that, like, yeah, it was fun. And like, it was a challenge and, and it was obviously a, a different dynamic. Um, especially like you're talking about, like I'm used to just breaking shit and, and, and fighting and, and hitting people. Right. But to go over there, you know, now that was really the only other than my grandma, that was really the only exposure to being around women. I didn't have a woman living in the house. It was really like what has what almost, I think, prepped me for having two daughters, right? So it's just like, it's kind of crazy when you look at these things of how that fits into the equation of, of the toolbox that I have of life now, right? And so just all of them were just such, they're just such great people. 
And I think that's what I was taken with when you get through about the first 60 pages of the book is this little patchwork quilt of incredible characters. You know, we've skipped a few. You're, you know, you're a couple friends you did the jackass stunts with. We skipped over your grandpa and your grandma who were like pioneer people, you know, in a modern era. I mean, they just built their life through salt of the earth. And you referred to uh, grandma as the rock and grandpa as the as the axe. This little patchwork quilt of people, including the cheerleaders we just spoke of, these weren't lessons you walked out of there right away with, but they're recollections that now have such an impact on your life because you are a dad and you have daughters. And I can just visualize great stuff there, all woven together so nicely. Let's fast forward a little bit into, um, I didn't know this. I guess I just thought all barracks were created equal in the military. I, I, I thought everybody has like, you know, eh, they're okay. They're like really stripped down, modest versions of college dormitories. Mm-hmm. And then there's the really nice ones that they know they reserve for the Air Force because those guys have everything really nice. Those guys got everything. But I thought Marine Corps and Navy accommodations were pretty similar. But when you talked about K-Bay, and this is before you deploy, this is your first stop now out of School of Infantry and you're getting ready to join the fleet, and you get to this barracks in Hawaii, which again, you know, you say Hawaii, and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be nice. He's going, he's never going to want to go to combat. Homeboy's going to be on the beach all day looking at girls. Yeah. You get to this concrete, moldy building where guys are chucking beer cans off the balconies, and on Saturday nights they they like turn it into a frat house, complete oh. with like jumping off the balconies, burning furniture, and then tell me about the guy who you described as the dude was so hard, I hated him, and I owe him everything, Corporal Daniel Kreitzer. So we're talking about a place called Mackey Hall, uh, famous. You Google it, Google it, and you can find it. it's de- definitely the, one of the one of the worst places in the in the Marine Corps. There are a lot of nice barracks down there. I'll, I'll tell you up front, like there's a lot of nice barracks, but the one Mackey Hall is just a it is a it is an, it's 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 insane. Um, cracky you know, Hall is what y'all call Cracky it. Hall is what they call it, right? And um, you, I mean, look, you you don't just show up, and, and, you know, to your to your to the fleet. And you, you have to earn your spot at the table, right? And and there's something to be said about earning your spot at the table versus being it given to you, right? I mean, there's something to be said about as much as it sucks to have to earn it, it is an important aspect to everything. So, you know, there was always that. I mean, it was always something going on. I mean, I, I don't know how many times that there was a basketball courts out back that it would be pouring down rain and I would have to go up there and mop the, the basketball courts because I did something dumb, right? Um <laughs> But yeah, there was a there was a guy named Daniel Kreitzer, and I talk about him in my first book a little bit. But this guy was, I mean, he just came back from the triad in Iraq, lost his his team leader, uh, just a horrible, horrible just guy got hit by an ID. Kreitzer, you know, Kreitzer was on him trying to save him, and and just, but he was also like one of the older guys uh, in in the unit, right? The guy held us to a standard. He he knew what we were preparing to go do. The the guy was business, and 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 I I understand that now because after losing my teammates, the seriousness of, seriousness of it is 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 a lot higher. A lot of people don't understand my approach on some things, but I also know what the cost is if you don't get it right. But Kreitzer was just a I hated him, but but I owe him because he woke up every day. Even when I didn't want to do it, even when everybody else wasn't doing it, and he was consistently trying to prepare me for combat, which in return, I thank God that he did, because that's probably a, 
a, a large reason as to why I'm alive today. Tell me a little bit about what a nine line is, because I'll put it in context for the listener. Everyone else in this frat house of new Marines or, you know, Marines at this ridiculously gross barracks with brown water. Um, <laughs> everyone else is drinking beers and, you know, just smoking a joke and running around, being a goofball, being loud, being crazy. And he would have you and your roommates drilling and he would constantly be drilling into you guys what a nine line was, making yeah. you yell back every piece of a nine line. And literally, these are the steps that most certainly saved your life and how he drilled that into you. You know, look, you can do it. Any, you know, anybody can sit down and memorize anything, right? We, we memorize stuff all the time. You know, that was the foundation for him, right? The foundation was the nine line. Like if you, and I tell guys this all the time, I still go back and tell them that like, you know, I hear these guys infantry like, well, we're bored. You know, like we just want to go to combat. And I look at him, I go, can you give me a nine line right now? And if they can't, it's like, well, you're not even ready to go. Like you couldn't even save a guy if they were hurt. I still remember it, right? It's location of pickup site. So a grid, radio frequency and call sign, number of patients by presidents. You got to have those three before anything can even launch to come help you, right? Like they have to know that. And then you go into special equipment required, number of patients by type, security of pickup site, number of type of wound and injury illness, method of marking, how you're going to mark the pickup site, patient nationality and status. Um, is there any is there any type of NBC contamination and your terrain description? And you have to bark that out like off the top of your head when S goes down and stuff's getting real and bullets are flying or, or somebody's hurt and there's noise, there's there's distraction. And you got to be able to have clear mind, calm down to be able to give each one of those lines so that the yeah, next he, steps can be taken. And, and, and it was something that he wasn't going to I mean, he took serious. Because literally it's the other than being able to protect somebody, being able to do, and we did a ton of medical stuff. The next thing is, is being able to get them out, right? The priority for Kreitzer was his people. And this was why this was a core piece to him, because this was a core piece to taking care of his guys. Mm. And you know what kind of blew me away when I was reading that and just kind of looking back is I couldn't remember where in the rank structure corporal was. I knew it wasn't very high. I didn't, I didn't know if it was the same thing as a specialist in the army or if it was, you know, third class, like I was in the Navy, but yeah, I looked it up and for him to have that presence of mind as such a young guy. Oh, he was, he was old. Like he, so he was like, I think he was like 30. Oh, was he an old? Okay. So he was an older E4. Okay. He came in. Yeah. He came in old, right? Like ah, he was gotcha. an older one. Right. And, but he just, but either way he was, he was young in, in the Marine Corps, like he was still in his yeah. first four years. And, and just like, cause other guys had seen combat too, that, that didn't care about this. I, I look at it as like, not, not that he had this insight, but that he cared that much, whether they liked him or not, that, that he was going to prepare them every moment that he had for whatever they might face down the road. Like that's how much this dude cared about us. Mm. Worth noting, you know, he was, targeting you guys because you guys were the boots in the building you were the newest members you were you were you didn't know anything quite yet about what it was really like he took you under and yeah. made sure that of all the people in the building he was going to drill and make sure new and nine line it was going to be these noobs yeah. it was going to be these new guys because i'm not having them go down on my watch and that is brotherhood so cool man so cool as we look ahead into the book um 
you know, there's so much about finding purpose, perseverance, so many little anecdotes. I don't want to give too many of them away, but if I had to ask you what you think the biggest anecdote from the book is, or one of the most powerful anecdotes about finding your purpose, what would you say it is? I don't know. Like, I think that's what, like, one of the, I think that's like what, what the unique part about this book is and why I'm so excited about it is it just depends on what day you read it, right? Like, it just depends on where you're at in life as to what hits home the most. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, 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 depending on what you're, you know, like the stories are like, we, we, we made these stories so relatable that, like, every time I read it, it hits me in a different way or like, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's just a, it's a unique, I never thought that we could have gotten a book out that was this like dynamic. I call it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, because I thought like so many of the military books, you know, it's all about the combat zone. It's all about that one patrol you were on or that one fob that you were stationed on or that one deployment that you were on and this covers so much landscape so much ground from your youth to you know your service days to post service it just covers that much and that's why i do feel you on that yeah so many anecdotes can be taken depending on where you where the reader is in their life i think the thing that we did that's that wasn't um that wasn't accurate was we wrote these books in a way to where we told the, the the story about the one or two days or whatever it is that we did things that seem larger than life, but we didn't tell the cost of that. You know, we didn't humanize these people. We told these stories that are just larger than life. And, and I think that what we did is, and I, and I understand like what people need in, in, in the world they, they need people to look up to, like they need people to, they need stories that, 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 that push them. Right. But, but my story, even in Afghanistan is no more, it's no more honorable than the single mom who chose, who bust her ass every day to, to raise her kids and to provide and to protect, you know, like it, it's no different than, you know, my, what I've done in life is no more honorable than what, what my dad did was way more honorable than what I did. Right. And so I just think that like in this book, my perspective from it was my life is just made up of a lot of mistakes. And, and all I can do is I can get through these, these, these stories that I tell. And the best thing I can do is learn from them and be able to connect with somebody who's going through them the next time. And so I think that like we told these stories as like these cool, awesome, badass kicking indoors, fighting like 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 as an entertainment way, but not humanizing all of it together. Yeah, man, I feel you on that because I know we took about an hour to talk about the Battle of Ganjgal. Um back in the day, several years ago, but it was interesting hearing about K-Bay. It was so interesting hearing about cheerleaders. It was so interesting hearing about your buddy, Mike, that, you know, knocked you out in your front lawn when you wanted to learn how to box. It was so interesting hearing about the trouble you got in in school, you know, when you came in after getting your clock cleaned and, and, and the principal and the cop had to show up at the classroom door. It was so much more interesting to hear the mistakes you'd made as a young man, as a young enlisted and Rob as well, to see that it wasn't all the 90-minute Hollywood movie version 
of life that America tends to see when they think of war. But it was, again, that quilt of all these different people patched together and the impacts they had on your life and all the times that we as men make dumb moves and the lessons we learn from it. But isn't that kind of the cool thing about life? Like there's only a few things you can ever do that you can't recover from. Like life is so forgiving. Life is so like the margin of error in life. Like obviously the older you get, the margin starts to slim. Right. But other than like going out and murdering someone, there's only like a few decisions that you can make that, that you truly can't come back from. And and especially living in the United States of America, we're in a world where you can be and do whatever you want to do. Uh, if I have to tease any element of the combat service in this book, is there one particular anecdote? You know, we try to weave the combat stuff in there as much as we can. It's not, I don't think it's as heavy anymore. Um, it's more of at a lighter, like, it's, I think it's more in, in line with how I look at combat now. What it means to me today is different than what it meant to me back then. You know, I, I think, you know, I talk about in there, about killing that guy with the rock. Right. And, um, when you kill bad guys, like it's, it's, it's just part of it. And looking at it now, that guy is the guy's face that I see all the time. And it's not that I feel bad about it. Like I don't feel bad about killing this man. Um, I think it makes me who I am today because of the close interaction the intimate interaction that I had with this man as I took his life and the appreciation that I had for how we got there and the deeper dives that I look at it of, yeah, at that moment, like we didn't even know each other. Like he believed in his cause as much as I believed in mine. Neither one of us thought we were wrong. Um, He had parents that loved him He had a cause that he felt like he was fighting for that was honorable. I mean, nobody goes and gives their life for something they don't believe in, right? Um, Especially in these types of moments. And then literally the only reason that we were there was because we were born in two different places. And I think that, like, when I look at it like that, it tells me there's a lot of lessons with that from it. It's. You can choose, if I can connect with a man that I'm killing and have empathy for a man that I'm killing, you can choose to connect and have empathy with any human on the face of the planet. And especially in the times that we're in right now, like it is a choice to not connect with somebody or to find a way to connect with somebody. It is a choice for you to slow down and give somebody empathy or try to be understanding of, of, hey, they they come from a different place, right? Who knows what's going on with their day? You know, it could be their first day you know, on the train that you, you know, this person seems like they're being an asshole. Well, you don't know if they just got the phone call that their, their child's sick or got cancer. Or you don't know that their wife could have lost their job or their husband or if they just found out a loved one died. You know, I just think that there's so many, it's not black and white. And the choice to connect with people, it's not about their actions. It's about your, you choosing to do that. And 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 I think that that's what we're lacking in, in the world today. And, 
you know, used to, I thought that I fought because I hated people, right? Like I used, and, and I think I used to fight with that. I think I used to fist fights or whatever it was. It was out of hate, right? It was out of like, you pissed me off, so I'm going to fight. But I think that now looking, looking at it and, and that moment changed it for me was I realized that I, 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 I couldn't fight any longer based on what I didn't like or how much I hated something. I had like, I was fighting based off of what I loved and what I wanted to protect and what I believed in. And that's a whole other level of strength and reason to fight. Mm, amazing. If you want to dive in deeper on this, get about halfway through the book. And when you talk about that incident, when you talk about that, um, I flashed back to our first conversation and other interviews I'd heard about Into the Fire and the Battle of Gondragal. And everybody is talking about the war. And it seems, I'll compare it to sports. It seems like those battles were like Super Bowl. And on this very moment is when he scored the touchdown and he took the terrorist's life. And it seems like that's glorious. But what happens to the war fighter, what happens in the years afterward is they look back and that highlight real moment that should be the greatest touchdown of my life suddenly has a totally different feeling. And you're learning a lesson from it, not about that person or the bad guys. You're learning lessons about you and who lives inside your skin. And it, it, it's a beautiful transition that I could, I, if, because I was familiar with our first interview and into the fire, when I read this, I was like, huh, look at old boy. Now I'm like five years later. And your takeaway from those combat scenarios is way different than it was back in the day. And that's where me and Rob kind of connected on this, right? Like, look, like when I killed that man with the rock, like I left and I was like, you couldn't, you couldn't bring me down. Right. And Rob, when he killed Bin Laden, he, I mean, he just literally killed the most wanted man on the face of the planet. Fast forward five years for both of us. And now Rob thinks about, you know, this is where we kind of connected to start this book. I was talking to him about that aspect of it. And Rob was talking about like, as soon as he shot Bin Laden, he immediately slung his gun down and ran over and grabbed the daughters. And I think that the perspective of it is this, is like, yeah, for America and for our side, we're, we're looked at as heroes. In that moment now, from the family of that man that I killed, I am just as evil to them as he was to me. And so it's such a complicated, complex dynamic that if you, you can't, you, you, it is, it is wrong to take the humanization factor out of these stories because you forget an important side of it. Mm, right on, man. And again, it's like hearing the maturity of the warfighter right here in this interview compared to like, you know, where you would have been had we met when you first got out and, you know, you were flying back to Kentucky from Afghanistan. Amazing stuff. Um, let's wrap with this. Uh, I, I read somewhere that uh, for readers to assess how the service members are treated after their discharge um, is an important message of this book. Uh, essentially, to dumb it down, uh, you guys are taught to kill but not to cope. Yeah. What do you think the U.S. needs to know about this class of veterans that is now almost 20 million strong in America? What's the takeaway for what we should know about service members today, how we should treat them, how we should view them post? I don't want to say post GWAT because I don't think the global war on terrorism ever ends. But 
post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan, what's kind of the takeaway you think that Americans should know about how to treat those that have served? Well, I think there's two two sides to it. I think the first thing that, that should stop happening is veterans be lifted up just because they signed a dotted line as heroes. I think that that aspect has done nothing but raise an entitlement generation of veterans. None of us, none of us were drafted. We all chose to go do this. We all got, the pay might not be that great, but we all had jobs. We all got paid for every single day that we did it. We all got some amazing benefits that a lot of people in, in the nation would love to have. We were, this idea that we don't take care of our veterans is an absolute bullshit. America paid us. Like we actually had the honor to wear the nation's cloth that a lot of people never had. So instead of walking around and having this entitlement of, well, you owe me because I served this country mentality. I blame the public or I blame America for, for, for doing that to the 9-11 generation by, you know, you sign the dotted line, you're a hero. No, this idea that, that everyone, just because they're a veteran, they get an automatic pass is complete bullshit. If anything, if you have the title veteran on your if you put it out anywhere, you tell anybody that you're a veteran, you should be held to a higher standard. Because if you are a hero, you know the cost that it's taken for us to have freedom to live in a great country. And so you have an obligation to continue to serve this nation for the rest of your life. If you want to be held at a higher standard, you want to be held at a hero, or you want to think that anybody in the world owes you something, what are you doing for it today to earn it? Not walking around and telling everybody how you serve this country and everybody owes you. And that mentality has got to be stopped. Nobody likes to hear that. No, And you know what? The people who didn't do shit, who literally joined for the paycheck, who literally had no intentions of ever going and fighting, truly fighting for this country, there's plenty of them. You know, there's plenty of them. And I just think that the accountability level for our service members has fell through the floor and they've got this entitlement pass that has got to be stopped. Yeah, does the VA have problems? 100%. 100% the VA's got issues. But but that ain't America's, like, that's not America. That is your government's problem, right? Like, that is the politicians up there. If anything, I wake up every day and I look at this country and I feel like I owe it more. And because I love this country and the same, you know, when I hear, when I hear people talk about, oh, you know, I, I got out and I can't find a purpose. Really? Really? You, you're telling me, you're telling me that in a, in a country that loves you, in a place that's your home, you can't find a purpose because I can look around and I can tell you that carrying a gun in Iraq in a place that we knew was going to go back to, to what it was. We knew they didn't want us there. We knew that they had no, no ambitions of, of being anything like us or better or wanted us to be better. You're telling me that you were making more of a difference there than you could by going and volunteering for a local fire department or by going and, and, and helping mentor kids or going and, and, and helping with a, a softball team or a baseball team or being a dad, being a good dad, like being a good husband or wife. You're telling me that you find more purpose carrying a, a, a rifle in a place where nobody's going to even know your name in five years, where nobody gives a shit about you, nobody even wants you there, you can find purpose there, but not here. Bullshit. 
I love it, man. I love it. You don't hold back. And I think what I especially loved about this book is that there's so many lessons outside of the context of the military to help you find purpose and help you persevere through tough days. The combat stories are in there. The military moments are in there. But the again, the web you weave of all these different characters, um, the way forward, master life's toughest battles and create your lasting legacy is just so full of ways to find that purpose, brother. And I thank you for pointing that out uh, because it has always been a kind of a mantra of Dakota Meyer that I've remembered for the last several <laughs> years. Uh, you know, you don't take it easy on the members of your own team, just like a Marine. And uh, it is to be remembered. And you do a ton of things. We've talked about your book before, but uh, there's own the dash, which I kind of like because the you know it 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 means you own that little dash between yeah. the day you were born and the year you are no longer walking on earth, and you know you're up there with the good Lord. The dash between those two years is where we are now. You got to own that. Uh, it's clothing. It's all kinds of stuff. But you can find out more if you just Google own the dash. Um, Flipside canvas, I wanted to just include because I thought that's pretty rad. Uh, and, and you have some really cool inspirational canvases if you're looking for something for the man cave or some, some great military themed badassery that you can put in canvas form on your wall. And I loved it. Um, the podcast is the American party podcast. If you want to hear about, um, how do I say it? Like <laughs> you're a doctor on the podcast. Is, no, is that I, no, what I've I mean, heard? No. So I mean, I, I, I keep. I keep telling, so I have an honorary doctorate. And, uh, so, so I keep telling Dan, you know, cause Dan is just one of the smartest human beings I know. He's got like, who knows how many masters, just in, his intelligence level is, is, is astronomical. So I always tell him I'm a doctor, right? Uh, just cause it pisses him off. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, you know, the American party is the American party podcast. I mean, it's, it's principle based perspective on the issues that we have right now like it's not about left or right it's not about it's just it's just trying to call it what it is um and that's kind of how we approach it listen to you knuckleheads debate the topics of the day is hilarious but the one especially i just listened to a couple weeks back was like you guys went on and on about the the doctor's coat and somebody finally called your card and they're like it's a lab coat you don't even know what it's called what kind of doctor are you i mean You guys are such knuckleheads, man. That's a good listen. But uh, the book, by all means, The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy. Uh, a good read. A good dude, man. Dakota Meyer. Thank you. good, brother. It's so good seeing you. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. 
Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Always on the go? Now you can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews with today's leading figures in politics, business, and entertainment in the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. Available every weekday wherever you get your podcasts.